Hi folks, welcome back to Bibliology, the podcast where I speak to Bible scholars about the recent research and its implications for communities of faith. My name is Patrick, and today on the show you'll get to hear my conversation with Dr. Adam Wynn of the University of Mary Harden Baylor in Texas. He operates in the College of Christian Studies, and he is a prolific author on many different topics, the Gospel of Luke, the Roman Imperial World, but He's especially interested in uh, the Christology of the first century Christian movement, and he's recently contributed to a volume that asks the question, how did the particular gospel writer Mark, how did he view Jesus? And this is a topic of great intrigue. Did Mark think that Jesus was simply a human messiah, um, or did he think he was um, something more? And of course, the orthodox Christian position is that Mark views Jesus um, as both God and man, that he is um, in some sense the God of Israel, but he's also fully human. He's fully God and fully human. So Adam has a fascinating um, perspective on this, and I think it'll really help you, and, it, and it's um, just uh, especially helpful for Christians as well, this, this research that he's doing, just in showing just how High, um, the the view of Jesus was even in the uh, earliest documents that we have from the New Testament. Of course, Mark is the earliest gospel. So, w- without further ado, I'll just get onto the conversation and let it speak for itself. And um, I'll have a link below to the book that you can um, purchase um, if that sort of thing interests you. So, let's get on to the show. Hello, Adam. Welcome to the show. Ah, thank you, Patrick. It's good to be here. We're going to be uh, talking about a recent volume you contributed today called Christology and Mark's Gospel, Four Views. But first of all, it might be good if the audience can get to know you a bit, um, just uh, see what you're like in everyday life and such. And I'm, I must admit that one of the first things I uh, that uh, I thought was noteworthy is that um, you're a Bible scholar who has written both a novel and academic material. Um, am I correct there? You are correct. That yes. is true. Yes. So um, which is more difficult to write and why? It's kind of a hard question to answer, but I'd say they're, uh, they're, they're hard in different ways. Um, fiction, I mean, to be fair, I've only written one fiction and it's a historical fiction. And so it, it has a bit of an academic kind of purpose to it, uh, but it is a fiction um, and it's hard. I mean, it, I'd say the most challenging thing is kind of coming up with characters that are uh, compelling and and dialogue that's believable. I think that's probably the hardest thing I, I ran into in, in writing fiction. And that was tough. And maybe also getting your pacing right. As an academic, you know, you don't writing academic work, you're not really worried about the pace of your, you know, is it entertaining as you go, but uh, a a, a piece of fiction, you have to make sure that it's, you know, that it doesn't drag in places and stuff. So that's challenging. But the other, the other thing I'd say is uh, there's so much room for creation, right? You're just creating, right? You're creating, uh, you don't have to worry so much about uh, proving your premise, you can you can be suggestive and you can be uh, you can insinuate to get the point kind of that you're trying to advance across. And so I thought that was in that way, it's a lot easier to, to, to kind of make your point through fiction. Um, 
I will say that the, the, the fiction is the most enjoyable thing I've written. Uh, it was a lot of fun to write it. And, uh, and yeah, probably more fun than any of the other projects I've worked on. Um, I, and I think I might try it again at some point. But okay. yeah, they both have their challenges, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually did, my degree was in um, creative writing. Um, okay. So the thing, my problem with writing fiction was that you just keep on coming up against plot holes, you know, in, but I suppose if you're writing historical fiction, you know, there aren't really any plot holes, you know, that's, that's probably the easy thing about it. That is, I should say that, yeah, uh, choosing to do historical fiction and choosing to write on the death of Jesus, you know, I kind of have some parameters to work with, right? I have a framework within, within which to operate. So that helps. And then, and also, uh, world, I don't do a lot of world building, right? The, 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 I, I have to kind of construct the world for the audience, but I have the raw materials of the world in the historical data. So, so that's kind of a helpful, uh, it's kind of a helpful thing in the, the path I choose to, chose to take as far as fiction goes. But yeah, but yeah, yeah you're right. Uh, plot holes would be challenging. Making sure yeah. everything kind of lines up is a little easier for me than it would be for most authors. I guess. Yeah. Uh, writing in historical fiction. To what extent do you think of yourself as writing Christian midrash when, when you're writing a, uh... <laughs> I've never thought about it. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't. It kind of kind of seems like that's what it is. Like you know, historical Christian fiction is kind of a form of midrash. It seems to me, but it, it yeah, maybe. I, it, it, I guess what I'd, I'm I'm less interested in. Uh, I'm more interested in dealing with this in, in the in the historical fiction. I'm more interested in resolving kind of uh, challenging historical questions than I am interpretive theological questions so that's where i'd say maybe it's not quite the same but uh, i can see it in some ways it being yeah fun that so another um one of these uh fun questions if if you had the world's attention for 30 seconds uh what would you say perhaps you do perhaps this is the most listened to podcast on the internet <laughs> <laughs> perhaps uh, perhaps you should find someone else has something <laughs> important to say um you know, I, 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 there's so many things you could say, uh, but I think a really important truth in my life is, uh, and something I'd want to communicate is, is that the, the God who created us loves us, and he loves us as we are, and loves us not as we should be, um, but, but he loves us so much he doesn't want to leave us as we are, and wants to transform us through the gift of his spirit, and, and make us into what he created us to be, so if that truth could be communicated in some powerful way, uh, maybe more elegantly than I, eloquently than eloquently, eloquently, there you go, uh, case in point. <laughs> um, you know, I'd, I'd like to communicate that. Yeah. So basically the gospel. <laughs> the gospel, there you go, that's right. Yeah. Basically the gospel. Needless to say, you've read a lot of the Bible um, in your time. Uh, otherwise I'd be a bit concerned. Um, but um, <laughs> if, if you could ask human Bible character not named Jesus because almost everyone would pick Jesus. Um, if you could ask them one question, what would it be? That's a good question. I, I, I debated which way to go here. Do I go a uh, nerdy Bible scholar way or do I go with, uh, you know, kind of thoughtful disciple route? And I decided to go nerdy Bible scholar. And, uh, and this is related to a, a project uh, we'll probably talk a little bit about later uh, that I'm working on. But I'd ask Paul how Jesus is related to the God of Israel. Um, and, and then, and why that he was the Yahweh of Israel is the right answer. <laughs> okay. Uh, 
but uh, but yeah, related to that, maybe a follow-up question would be, and how does that compare to what your contemporaries think? Contemporary Christians and contemporary Jews. So questions about how Paul understood Jesus in relationship to the God of Israel, and is Paul different in, or is, is, is he similar to his contemporaries? Hmm. I guess that'd be what I'd be most interested in. Okay. That's at least today. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, Paul, I think if I met him, I would have about a thousand different questions and some of them would be about women, I think, but some of them would be about Christology as well. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah, but I think if I had to pick anyone, Paul would be the person I'd want to talk to. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll get on to talking about this um, new book you've um, contributed to, which is, it's of course a written debate. To begin with, um, I suppose, could you briefly explain um, what is this high versus low Christology debate and um, where the if there is such a thing where the consensus currently lies on this topic. Yeah, absolutely. So, so if a New Testament author holds a high Christology, it usually means that they understand Jesus to be divine in some way. Um, and by divine, not just supernatural, not just an exalted being that's not human, uh, but in some way closely associated with or treated as or equated to the God of Israel, right? So this, this idea of uh, not, not divinity in maybe a broader Greek and Roman sense, but divinity in kind of a Jewish sense. Um, and the low Christology would be Christology that falls short of that, that bar, right? So Jesus is Messiah, but decidedly human rather than divine. Um, Jesus as an angelic figure, but distinct from and subordinate to God, um, something like that. Uh, so those, that's kind of high and low Christology. Now, now qualification related to one of the authors in this, so Daniel Kirk is one of the authors, and he's pushed back against these titles. And has argued that so he argues that in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus is best understood as an exalted human figure, perhaps the, the supremely exalted human figure. Uh, and, and Kirk wants to say that's not a low Christology. That that's a that's that's not saying something low, he kind of reads as kind of negative. And he goes, That's a high Christology, even if Jesus isn't divine. Um, but despite Kirk's uh, persistence, that isn't what most scholars mean when they say high and low Christology. So most scholars would say Kirk still falls under the category of a low Christology for Mark's gospel. Um, but I think he pushes back and gives a, you know, I mean, it, low doesn't mean insignificant, an insignificant person. Low just means you fall on one side of the, the divine identity, I guess. Okay. And you mentioned um, Greco-Roman ideas there about... Mm -hmm. um, kind of semi-divine humans um, that sort of thing sure. and you also mentioned um, Jewish views so um, could you maybe no. just spell out a little bit what's the tension that exists between the, those two um, those two worldviews at that level um, yeah and and there's debate about how much tension there is so I should acknowledge that um, but I'd say in general it seems that um, you have a sense that that a very clear sense in in Greek and Roman thought that uh, divinity is kind of a sliding scale, right? Uh, you have you, you have Zeus maybe on one end, right? And and this is this is very divine, and 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 but along the way you could have a whole spectrum of divine supernatural beings, but not as powerful as Zeus, all the way down to the to the 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 marginalist of human beings and then you might have your roman emperors in there somewhere and 
and and then you have you know you might have uh, someone like Hercules, which uh, is a demigod that, that, that in certain traditions becomes uh, fully divine, I think, or something like that. But so that kind of spectrum is very normative in uh, in, in Greek and Roman thought. Um, and then there's debates in there's debates in in uh, early Christian studies, early Jewish studies about how similar Judaism was to that. But in some way, Jews understand. I would say, I'd say likely in some ways, Jews understand the creator God to be certainly far greater than all other in, intermediary supernatural beings. Even if those intermediary beings are recognized as, as, as gods or lords, or as Paul says, there are many lords and gods, that kind of language, um, that there's a pretty, there's a difference. Now, it might be that, and then, there, and then New Testament scholars are going to argue about how permeable the boundary between them is, right? Um, some are going to say, like Larry Hurtado or, or Richard Bauckham is going to say, the, the boundary between the God of Israel and all other beings is, is, is basically uncrossable. Um, and then you have some that are going to argue, maybe like uh, Paula Fredrickson uh, would say, uh, it's a kind of a permeable, uh, it's, it, it, you can permeate that boundary pretty easily, right? That things can go back and forth. I mean, so that's kind of where the debate lies. But even still, I think we can say that that paradigm, whichever paradigm you go with, kind of an exclusive monotheism or inclusive monotheism, still is different than what Greeks and Romans, uh, still a bit different than them, and yeah. I, I would think. Yeah, and so the question is, of course, um, where does where does Jesus fit into this? This is that's what we're asking when it comes to. That's, yes, that's exactly yeah. right. That's the and, question. Where is Jesus? And, and so, um, at like to know um in a nutshell what are the views of the various contributors in this volume uh, yourself included yeah okay I'll, I'll i'll do i'll do my view last um sandra hubenthal is uh one contributor and um she takes a very strict narrative approach to reading mark's gospel sometimes uh, approach has a lot to do sometimes with uh, conclusions um, i think that's pretty obvious as you're reading these essays and so it's a pretty strict narrative approach um not wants to wants to look at the narrative only and assume very little about the reader outside the narrative. Um, and I would say, and, and, and to that end, she, that narrative approach leads her to kind of seeing within Mark kind of differing perspectives of Jesus. So so she would say that the narrator narr, narrative or narrator has one perspective of Jesus, and Jesus himself has a different perspective. Um, so Jesus, she would say, sees himself as a human prophet, uh, perhaps Messiah, but in her mind, that Jesus and Mark um, sees himself maybe as Messiah, but distantly as Messiah. That 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 kind of a suspended kind of suspended identity that that will have that will become clear when he returns, but not now. Um, and Jesus, she would she would say, doesn't see himself as divine. And then the narrator sees Jesus as clearly the 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 anointed Son of God prophesied by Isaiah. Um, and when it comes to the narrator's view on Jesus's divinity, she's a little more ambiguous or open-ended where she says that he's not, he would never, she would say that Jesus is not explicitly communicated as divine by any, anyone in Mark's gospel, uh, including the narrator, but leaves open the possibility for reader, uh, readers to, uh, to come to that conclusion, particularly probably Greek and Roman readers. If a Greek and Roman, Roman reader were to read Mark, they might walk away with this idea of Jesus as some sort of divine figure on the spectrum they're familiar with. Um, so she kind of leaves it a bit open-ended. I'd say largely she sees Jesus and Mark as a human figure, but with the possibility of people concluding that he could be divine from Mark. Um, that would be, I think I'm 
again, I want to say, read the book, read and, and let them rep, rep, represent themselves. But I think that's kind of a, a decent nutshell uh, <laughs> summary. Um, Kirk, Daniel Kirk also takes a pretty strict narrative approach. Um, and he sees Mark, Mark's Jesus as uh, decisively human, right? Mark's Jesus is an idealized human figure. Um, and this is coming from previous work that, that Kirk has done is uh, written a book by Erdman's A Man Attested, and it has to do with idealized human figures in the Synoptic Gospels, and he does a lot of historical work on idealized human figures. Um, but he wants to say Jesus is perhaps the greatest idealized human figure, but he's not the God of Israel in any way. Um, for Mark, Jesus is the human messianic agent whose identity is primarily grounded in his suffering. Um, or for, yeah, yeah, that's how Kirk would, that's Kirk's position. And then uh, Larry Hurtado is uh, the third contributor. And Hurtado, while he wants to pay attention to the narrative, uh, Hurtado also wants to pay greater attention to the broader Christian context. What type of people are reading Mark? And this, for Hurtado, this should shape how we read Mark, um, which is something that Kirk and Humanthalo are, are more reluctant to, to uh to say. Um, and so, so for Hurtado, and a lot of Hurtado's work is focused on the place of Jesus in early Christian worship and, 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 and uh, Jesus being having a prominent place in Christian worship. So he wants to see people who are worshiping Jesus are the ones reading this text. But despite that, Hurtado is reluctant to identify G, uh, the Mark and Jesus with God or as God. Um, so for Hurtado, he wants, it feels to me, and I say this, I think in my response, it feels like he comes right up to the line of saying that Jesus is divine, but he pulls up a little bit short. So he'd say things like, um, maybe Jesus is, uh, the, Jesus is uniquely associated with God's activity. Or, uh, one quote I have here is Jesus is the embodiment and bearer of divine significance but not, doesn't want to go, he doesn't want to cross that bridge, I guess. Um, so that's kind of Hurtado's place. He, he, he comes close, uh, but he doesn't cross the line. Um, and then there's me. And, uh, and my perspective is, is, is uh, a bit different than the rest. Um, I would say like Hurtado, I'm, I'm certainly interested in Mark's narrative, but I'm also interested in the broad, broader setting in which it's written. Um, but I think what sets me apart probably from the rest of the contributors is um, my reconstruction is, and Hurtado in particular, and probably probably to a, a significant degree, Kirk, um, is my reconstruction of Jewish monotheism, how I understand uh, how Jewish, it, my understanding of Jewish monotheism. And this is part of actually a larger project I'm working on. Um, me and a friend of mine who teaches at uh, Baylor University are working on this project. Um, so I would say Hurtado understands Jewish monotheism in terms of strict singularity. Um, this idea that, and this is, by the way, the way probably most Christians understand it. The, the God of Israel is, or the, before Christianity, the God of Israel under, was understood in terms of oneness, right? A strict singular being. Um, whereas I would contend, and I think there's good evidence, and I made, made cases for this elsewhere, uh, or I'm making a case of definitely in the book I'm working now, that Jews uh, conceived of gods in terms of two distinct powers, right? That the, that they, that the oneness of God didn't demand the singularity of God, uh, or, or the, one go the one God didn't demand the oneness or singularity of God. That's a better way to say it. Um, 
And so, so I start from this reconstruction, reconstruction of Judaism that would posit something like Jews holding to this notion of a transcendent expression of Yahweh and an imminent expression of Yahweh, right? Um, so examples of an imminent expression of Yahweh might be something like the Logos and Philo um, or something like the wisdom tradition uh, or the son of man figure in the Enoch, first Enoch or the parables of Enoch. And so I'm working from that material, seeing those things as um, expressions of Yahweh, imminent expressions of Yahweh, ways Yahweh engages his creation. And so from that reconstruction, I read Mark's gospel and argue that if that's the monotheism that Mark is living in and the Jews are living in, that I think Mark is explicitly communicating Jesus as the imminent Yahweh. Okay. Um, so for so for Mark, Jesus is the Yahweh of Israel, um, who is active in the Old Testament, or he is the embodiment of, if you want to say incarnation or embodiment, the human expression of that Yahweh. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for those. So that's a lot yeah. for you. Go ahead and follow up. These questions are obviously touching on kind of the heartstring, the heartbeat of Christianity per se. You know, the question of Christology very much does that. Sure. And so, sure. And so I'm wondering, uh, do you think it's problematic for, for gospel writers to possibly have a flawed Christology by the standards of orthodoxy? Or do you think is there room for the evangelist to not have all the answers figured out? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I, I would say I don't find it problematic at all. I think it's highly unlikely that they had all the answers figured out. I'm, I'm very confident that, that none of the gospel writers had as sophisticated a view of Jesus's divinity uh, or the Trinitarian nature of God as you're going to find established uh, at the later councils that have kind of produced or given us our, our understanding of orthodoxy. So I would say, yeah, I don't find a problem at all. I, these authors probably, I think, in many ways had the basic pieces of what would later become Christian orthodoxy when it comes to Christology, but some of them might not have even have all those pieces. So yeah, I don't see a problem. And I guess I would say this, um, one reason why I guess I don't see it as problematic is, is because while I am a strong adherent to, to orthodoxy and orthodox Christian faith, um, I don't think orthodox faith is essentially the same thing as salvific faith. Um, there have been people, I, I think it's very likely that we're going to find a lot of people in the eschaton um, that uh, fall outside the boundaries of orthodox orthodox Christology, Right. Um, that Christology was shaped and formed over a significant period of time. Um, and so there's obviously going to be many Christians that uh, prior to that um, didn't understand that Orthodox uh, faith. Uh, but, but, but I think their, their faith would, would certainly have been salvific. So, yeah, that's where I'd say there's plenty of room for them to, to not have all the answers or not have, not have it all put together in the way that, that you know, Orthodox theologians today have mm. and i think it's kind of um it, it just seems intuitive to think that the disciples would have a, a long period of wrestling with you know well this guy was he actually god or that like that you can you can obviously imagine that they really had to think through that um, with them the categories that they were they inherited from from their um, jewish worldview and such so i i think you're um spot on there um, yeah, yeah, and I think you're right. I think it took a lot of. We can see it absolutely took a lot of wrestling. Is is they're still debating it, right? Uh, 
centuries later. Yes, yes. Um, and we'll, we'll move on to maybe the, um, the more scholarly angle of it. And I'd be curious to know what would be your strongest argument uh, for the case that Mark views Jesus as the God of Israel? This is a tough one because my argument's built on a number of different pieces. As I already mentioned, kind of one of the foundational pieces is my kind of monotheism. So that's that's pretty foundational. But beyond that, if we're just talking about something in Mark that I find the most compelling, um, I think it is the story of Jesus walking on the water in Mark 6, 45 through 52. Um, and I think there's a lot. I, I think if you ask most Christians today, give me your best piece of evidence from Mark that Jesus is Yahweh or Jesus is the God of Israel, I, very few would pick that. But if you were a first century Jew, I think that would be your strongest piece of evidence. Um, there's there's a handful of details in that story that are really important. Um, one, Jesus in, 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 in this uh, this pericope, Jesus comes out walking, walking on the waves of the sea. And what's interesting is in Job 9.8, you find it a text that says only Yahweh can walk on the waves of the sea, right? Only Yahweh does this. And in fact, the phrase that Mark uses seems to be a direct quote of a, of a part of Job 9.8, right? Um, and it almost as Mark is intentionally alluding to at least the Septuagintal version of, of the Greek version of Job 9.8. Um, so there's that, where, where Jesus is doing something that, that the... The Old Testament scriptures, Job says that only Yahweh does. So that's one piece. Then you get this odd reference um, at the end of Mark 6, 48, where it says that Jesus intended to pass them by. And, and, and Matthew takes this story, and Matthew, uh, if, we're, if we understand Matthew is a, or Mark is a source for Matthew, he eliminates this, right? It's an odd detail. Isn't Jesus going out to help them? And Matthew is going out to help them. But in Mark, he's going out to pass them by, which is, is, is odd. Until you look at that language, the passing by language in the Old Testament, and, and notice that it is very prominent in theophany stories. Um, so you can look at the, the story of Moses and Yahweh on Mount Sinai, um, and, and, and the episode where Moses asked to see God's glory, and, and God says that, that, he can't, he, that he can't see him from the front, right? But, but that he's going to put him in the cleft of the rock and cover him with his hand, and then he says, and I will pass you by. And he uses, in, if in the Septuagintal version of that, uh, uh, in the Greek version of that, that, that Old Testament text, um, it uses the exact same verb, passing by, that Mark uses. Um, and it's not only in that story, but it also shows up in the Theophany where God shows up on Mount Horeb and reveals himself to Elijah. Right. And, and God tells Elijah or the, uh, is it the word of God tells Elijah, the angel tells Elijah to stand out on the edge of the mountain because God is going to pass him by. And so when you realize that the passing by language is really closely associated with Old Testament theophanies, you, you, all have, you have some really important pieces. Jesus is walking on the water as only Yahweh can do. And then he's engaged in an act of passing by, which is closely associated with Yahweh's revelation or revealing of himself. And then something that you miss in English, but you pick up if you are reading it in Greek, when the disciples see Jesus and cry out, the first thing that Jesus says is in Greek, ego a me, which, which in, in English is often translated as it is I, but a, a better translation is, is, is I am. Right. And, and that phrase, ego a me, is part of what 
Yahweh says to Moses at the burning bush, um, when Moses asks, who should I say is sending me? It is, uh, tell them I am that I am is sending me, right? I am who I am. And then also ego a me becomes a really important form of self-reference for Yahweh when you hit the prophets, especially Isaiah. Um, it's often Yahweh saying, I am, I am. Um, and so you get three important pieces, I think, here. You have Jesus walking on water like Yahweh. You have Jesus intending to pass by, which I think is this language of theophany. And then you have Jesus saying, ego me. And here's another interesting twist there. In the, in the episode where, where God tells Moses he's going to pass him by, um, he says, I'm going to pass you by and I'm going to speak my name. And what do we have in this story? We have Yahweh or Jesus intending to pass by. And when his disciples see him, what does he say to them? He says, ego me. So he's in the act of passing by, he's speaking ego me. And so I think if you, it's hard for me to believe that a first century Jewish reader doesn't take all these pieces and say, Jesus is being presented here as the Yahweh of Israel. Um, So I think that's to me the most compelling. And you'll hear, have people, I mean, people will try and respond, or, and, and it's not that scholars haven't recognized this, but they'll kind of say, well, Jesus is acting in the place of Yahweh, or Jesus is, is acting like Yahweh, or something like that. But I think the problem with those kind of conclusions is what Jesus is engaged in is an act of self-revelation, Yahweh's act of self-revelation, right? So how is Jesus acting as Yahweh in an act of Yahweh's self-revelation, right? Unless Jesus is revealing himself as Yahweh. So I think that's the most compelling. I think it's the hardest for people to explain who take a different perspective. Um, I mean, if you're a first century Jew reading this familiar with Septuagint, I think it's the screaming red light saying Jesus is Yahweh. I mean, that's how I read it. Um, But anyway. Yeah. And um, I remember the the first thing I came across, um, something similar to your argument, it was um, kind of an exegesis of the same passage was in Richard Hayes' book, um, Echoes of Scripture, yeah, in, sure. in the Gospels. And uh, I, I remember um, just, just getting goosebumps, you know, when he, when he was uh, going through that, because it, it really is yeah. a very, very compelling argument. Um, I'm wondering how, how, influ- how influential has, has his work been on how, how you approach this issue? Yeah, Hayes is definitely one of the one of the voices. I mean, Hayes Hayes's work on this passage, and that's that's been noticed by others as well. Um, yeah, so absolutely, I think Hayes is important, uh, influential um, in kind of the trajectory of the the work I'm doing right now, um, and and that my reading of Mark. I'd also want to say uh, there's a there's an article by Tim Geddert uh, called "Implied Yahweh Christology" that that I would say probably is a little more directly influential. Hmm. And then uh, I, I don't I can't remember the first name. Um, Johansson, I think, is his uh, his name. Curios, where he talks, he does a lot with the Curios the or the use of Lord in the Gospel of Mark. That also. So I'd say those two, along with Hayes, um, there might be one or two others I'm forgetting, but I'd say those are probably some of the more influential. Um, and, and this, I should say, this again, I think I mentioned this, this, this chapter, this, this contribution is part of a much larger project that me and a friend are working on, which we're arguing that, that many of the New Testament authors understand Jesus as the Yahweh of Israel. Um, and while that, so that, that uh, certainly resonates with the work of Hayes, I think in some ways we are trying to even push a bit further 
uh, and make that connection even stronger um, than than what you see in Hayes and even with 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 Getter and even like a uh, Hurtado and and um, Occam. Yeah, yeah, and it's a it is a very very compelling argument. But I think for for some listeners, um, they might be thinking. Um, well, if Jesus is God, why doesn't Mark just say it? <laughs> yeah, know, sure, absolutely. Not... So, um, so how would you respond to that? Um, yeah, well, I would say uh, is he does over and over again. He does just say it. But the problem is our understanding, and this is where my back, what, what I'm trying to reconstruct as Jewish monotheism really is important. So depending on depending on how you reconstruct Jewish monotheism is how, how you're going to answer this question. And what I would say is, um, mo- so most Christians think of God in terms of the singular God, God, the father, God of the Old Testament. Those are all the same things. But what I would say is if you understand Jewish monotheism in terms of this kind of two powers in which there's this way in which the, the transcendent Yahweh and the imminent Yahweh, it answers this question well, because Jesus never presents himself as a transcendent Yahweh. Right. That's that's the father. That's the one he prays to. That's the one who. Right. That's that's the one who says uh, my beloved son, etc. But I think over and over again, Mark is identifying Jesus as the imminent Yahweh, right? Um, so let me just give you an interesting, uh, there's a couple, there's a passage or a handful of passages in Mark that I think this, this kind of two powers theology helps explain. So um, let's look at Mark 1, uh, 2 through 3, where you have um, Mark quoting Isaiah 43, right? Um, where you have, um, let's see, a voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, right? This is a quote, a citation of Isaiah 43. Um, and if, and if you're reading this in the old Testament, that is about Yahweh, right? I mean, uh, the, the, the voice calling the wilderness, the Lord of that passage is clearly Yahweh, but in Mark's gospel, John the Baptist is clearly the voice in the wilderness, Right? Obviously, he's the voice in the wilderness. And who is he preparing the way for? He's clearly preparing the way for Jesus. And so what, and, and what's interesting is, and then we'll look at the very first half of that text. So it's, Mark is, is, is quoting two different passages that have been blended together. And the first part says, see, I'm me- sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. Now, interpreters often point out that, that Mark has tweaked that text just slightly. So see, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. So it's the voice talking is Yahweh in the Old Testament. And thus, it seems like there's a distinction between the I who is sending and ahead of you. And in the Old Testament, it's see, I'm sending my messenger ahead of me. And, and so Mark's tweaked it slightly. And some will point and say, oh, well, there's a distinction between the two. But then you get to the second passage where uh, the voice in the wilderness is preparing the way for Yahweh, and he's preparing the way for Jesus. And so I think the, the solution, the two power solution gives you uh, gives a way for Mark to understand this. He's able to change the me from you because he understands Yahweh in terms of two distinct powers. The transcendent Yahweh is sending you the eminent Yahweh to the people. Right. And thus, John the Baptist is preparing the way the voice on the world is preparing the way for Yahweh. Hmm. But we're talking about Yahweh understood in two kind of expressions, transcendent and eminent. And so. So what I want to say is there's all kinds of places, I think, all over. If you bring that to the text, if that's an understanding that the Christians and Jews had of the God of Israel, then I would say 
Mark is saying Jesus is, is Yahweh or God over and over and over again. He's just not saying he's the transcendent Yahweh. Mm. Does, that, does that help? That, that makes a lot of sense, yes. And this idea of um, the, the two powers in heaven, um, I believe it was, was it, his name was Siegel who um, yes. orig- yeah. originally came up with this uh, thesis. Right. And, um, and I suppose this was something that Jews and Jews were getting from their Old Testament. What were some of the passages that they were thinking of? I think there's, so I think that the, I think the standard line of argument is going to be more, more along the lines of there's a growing commitment among Jews in the late second temple period to the utter transcendence of Yahweh, right? This, this utter transcendence where Yahweh is utterly, um, uh, kind of imperceivable, right? He's, he's utterly transcendent. We can't connect with him. But then you have, but then yes, you have your Old Testament story where Yahweh's frequently present, right? I mean, Moses Moses sees him at the burning bush and he walks in the garden of Eve Eden with, 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 with Adam and Eve, right? I mean, you have all these places where Yahweh is, is you know, wrestles, possibly wrestles with, uh, with Jacob, right? All these kind of places where it seems like Yahweh's there. So how do you understand that? And so I think the the, the, the general theory is that as, as an emphasis and a push towards uh, seeing Yahweh as utterly transcendent, then you have to find some way of explaining how he's imminent. Um, and so this, I do think this grows out of certain readings of the Old Testament or is used to explain certain readings of the Old Testament. Um, but I think that's kind of where its origins lie in this notion of Yahweh's transcendence. Uh, you then have to account for his imminence. A book that I think is really has been incredibly influential for me is a book by Daniel Boyarin, um, and it's called Borderlines. Uh, so if anybody's interested in this kind of understand this kind of the background of this kind of understanding uh, Yahweh in terms of two powers and and kind of the logos idea and and, and that I, I would I would highly uh, recommend Daniel Boyarin's uh, Borderlines. Excellent book, really good, influential for kind of the perspective I'm promoting here. Okay. Okay. Yeah, sure. And I'd um, at this point, I'd like to get your um, opinion on some of what your uh, fellow contributors have to say in, in this in this volume. Um, but I think you definitely have a very strong case yourself. But um, of course, um, we'll we'll see what they have to say. So um, which which of your fellow contributors do you think has the strongest argument and um, why would you not be um, convinced by it ultimately? Yeah, I think I would say that uh, probably I'm most sympathetic to Hurtado's, Larry Hurtado's argument, uh, and probably that has a lot to do with our approach. Uh, both of us are trying to give, uh, both of us are less strictly narrative uh, in our approach, and when we're paying attention to broader factors than the narrative and letting our reading be influenced by some of those broader factors, and so I'd say that probably is why I'm probably sympathetic, and like I said, Hurtado seems to so to bring Jesus right up to the line of of he gets him really close to the God of Israel, but pulls up just short. And and the others are a bit further away from that, right? Which which is obviously further away from where where I end up. Um, and and I'd say that 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 a lot of the reading that Hurtado, a lot of the reading that Hurtado presents of Mark, I agree with. I just would say I think you can push further. Now Hurtado's response, uh, uh, sadly, I, I haven't mentioned this, but but Larry Hurtado passed away in the last year and. And I think this is maybe his last published work, but 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 the person um, who fills in, uh, Chris 
Keith is filling in for him and, and kind of did the, the respondents. And, and, he, and he says, or I say, I wish he would push forward. Keith says he's being careful. Um, and, and I can respect that. I can respect that he's trying to, to, to not draw greater conclusions. So, but I think you can move forward and still be careful, but that's where we would disagree. So I'd say while I'm ultimately, the reason I'm ultimately not convinced by Hurtado's argument is I simply don't think he goes as far as the evidence can take you. I think the evidence goes farther than Hurtado thinks it goes. Um, part of that has to do with our reconstruction of Second Temple Judaism or uh, uh, monotheism in Second Temple Judaism. Uh, we have different positions on that, and so that accounts for a lot of our our differences there. I think, and why I'm willing to go uh, somewhere he's not willing to go. Yeah, would I be correct in saying, um, just just on the note of uh, Larry's Larry's passing, and of course he was a hugely influential scholar. Was he? Um, was this kind of um, his contribution to this volume? Was it cut short um, by his by his passing? Was that, or was this something? He, he was able to he was able to complete. So in the, so the way the, the volume, I'll just say how the way the way the volume is set up is everyone has an original an original piece, right? Everyone has their original uh, essay on the Christology and Mark, and then everyone gets to give a response to everyone else. And, and, and then we each get a final word. <laughs> we each get a final word in response to our, 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 our contributors. And so Larry was able to do the first two pieces. He was able to write the, the initial essay, and he was also able to respond to all of us. Um, he, sim- he, wasn't able to, he wasn't able to do the final last word. And so it's Chris Keith uh, who, who has, who, writing in his stead, gives the final last word for Larry. Um, yeah, so he, he, it was a bit cut short, but but we're able to capture Larry's uh, original essay and his response to all our essays, which I, we're all very thankful for. Yeah, yeah, that that is that is fantastic, and he of course was um, hugely uh, influential in New Testament studies. Um, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So I'd like to ask: there would be this other idea um, that wouldn't be Hurtado's, but it would be an idea that you hear quite a lot from the the low Christology. Uh, camp. I, I don't really like using that word, but just for um, sake of um, sure. convenience. And that would be this idea of a, an adoptionist Christology. And uh, well, maybe you could briefly explain what that is, an adoptionist Christology. But some would say that Jesus being designated um, uh, the son of God at his his baptism would would imply this. So so I wonder how, how would you um, how would you respond to that? Yeah, I guess I should first say that that that, that position isn't taken by anyone who's contributing or yeah. reading uh, or contributing to this project. Yeah, um, yeah, adoptionist Christology generally understands Jesus um, to, in some way, be divine, but but that he becomes divine at a certain point, right? That that he is adopted as son of God at his baptism. I I think among New Testament scholars, you get a little more often at his resurrection, but but you do have this idea at his baptism as well. So both of those show up. Um, and and so that so that Jesus was was a human being, a human figure, maybe an exalted human figure, but he then is adopted and um, and, and and his divinity or his divine, yeah, some sort of divine identity begins then. Um, so as far as that relates to the baptism in in Mark, how I'd I'd re- I would reject reject an adoptions Christology in general. Uh, um, I, I I I would lean more toward I would I would strongly advocate that most early Christians had some sense of this it had some sense of this second power and that was pre-existent etc um 
But let's just talk about adoption uh, at the baptism, this idea that Jesus is adopted as son of God. I, I'd start by saying that first, I think the one of the problems there is the assumption that son of God is a title that conveys divinity for Mark. Um, I, I, I think son of God in most instances where it has a Jewish, which used in a Jewish context, it's not conveying divinity. It, it, it's much more of a, a title conveying kingship. And, 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 and I'll make the argument in Mark here. So in Mark, uh, in when Jesus comes out of the water, um, God declares, you are my son, the beloved, in whom I'm well pleased. And, and, and that is a du- direct quotation of Psalm 2-7 uh, and then going on into 8, uh, where you have a royal coronation psalm. Psalm 2-2 is a royal coronation psalm. And in that coronation psalm, so so coronation, so when the when the king of Israel had passed, a new king comes to power uh, or or abdicates or something. You have a new king. You have a coronation, and in the psalm, it has it has the king saying that the the, the Lord said to him, or Yahweh said to him, "You are my son. Today I have begotten you." And and I think what this baptism story is doing is is simply drawing on that, intentionally drawing on that, and in the same way that the king of Israel was God's son. Metaphor, metaphorically, right? I mean, the king of Israel is God's son, I, I would argue, in terms of metaphor. Mark is arguing there that this is Jesus's royal carnation, that God says to Jesus, you are my son, acknowledging that this is the beginning of his, we want to say, uh, uh, reign as God's appointed Messiah, eschatological messenger, all of those sorts of things. Uh, so I don't think that you are my son I would never go to that to argue that communicates Jesus's divinity in, in Mark's use of that. I don't think is necessarily connected to divinity. I think it's much more connected to ideas of Messiah and kingship and, and those sorts of things. Um, and so I don't think there's, I don't think that passage is conveying anything about Jesus becoming God's son or, or what I, what I should say is becoming divine. I think what it's communicating is at this point of your baptism, the messianic ministry of Jesus begins in the same way that in Psalm two, when God declares the king is son, that's when his kingship begins, right? It's God's declaration of sonship. So, uh, till that up, up before that, Jesus is Messiah in waiting or king in waiting. Doesn't mean he's not divine, but, but so that's how I'd answer that. I, I just don't think the sonship language in that passage has really much to do with conveying Jesus' divinity. Mark does convey his divinity, I think, in other ways, but not that way. Yeah, that's helpful to view it as a as a coronation um, image rather than a an image of divinity as you were putting it so another um one of these we were just talking about son of god this is of course one of the phrases that um is used to talk about jesus another one is and this is jesus own favorite one would be the son of man title and i'd be curious to know how you think um the the controversial usage of the son of man epithet in um, mark 14 um, 62 how does that speak to questions of christology maybe if you could just frame it in the, the in the narrative context just for the listeners but i'd be curious to hear your answer there yeah absolutely i'm glad you asked this question because i think i think this is a place where um my my argument or my understanding of 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 of, of mark explains an interpretive detail that's long been kind of a conundrum for scholars so to set the stage for for the audience um in, in Mark 14, 61, Jesus is on, on trial before the high priest, uh, Caiaphas, and, and the council. And he's asked, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus responds by saying, I am. 
Again, by the way, I'll come back to this, but that's ego a me that he says, I am. And, and then says, uh, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Um, so that's where we're at. That's Jesus's response. And, and, the, and the, what's interesting is the high priest's response to that is to charge Jesus with blasphemy, right? He charges Jesus with blasphemy. And for many readers of this text, the question seems to be a question about Jesus being the Messiah. Jesus seems to give a positive affirmation. Ego me, I, I am the Messiah. I mean, that's the traditional interpretation. And then he says, you will see the son of man, which could be understood in messianic terms, uh, seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven with a, with an illusion. By the way, it's very obvious there for the, for the readers that are unfamiliar. Jesus is um, alluding to a passage in Daniel chapter 7 where Daniel has a vision and he has a vision of one like a son of man who comes to the ancient of days and he comes in the clouds of heaven or with the clouds of heaven to the ancient of days and he's given kingship and dominion and power and authority. So all interpreters recognize this. And, 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 and the, the understanding there is, well, Jesus is just simply affirming that he's God's Messiah, right? That this is an affirmation of his messianic identity. He's asked a question, he answers it in the affirmative and then kind of gives this Danielic tradition to kind of characterize what type of Messiah he will be. Um, it communicates his coming judgment when he'll come after his death, uh, after his resurrection, he'll come, he'll, he'll engage in judgment of, 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 of the people, etc. Hmm. But the, but the really difficult thing to explain is how Jesus's claim to be Messiah leads to a charge of blasphemy, right? Um, Usually blasphemy has to do with using the name of God in an inappropriate way or in some way claiming an identity associated with God or something like that. And so this has been this conundrum that scholars have tried to figure out. How do you how do you get to the charge of blasphemy? Like what's going on there? And so to deal with it, many scholars have gone the route of saying, well, um, maybe in, in this time, blasphemy had a much more broader understanding and so to make any kind of claim to be God's messenger and not be, then, then maybe that could be blasphemy. And there is some evidence, I, I don't want to say there isn't, there is some evidence that maybe blasphemy had a broader uh, range at this time. But one thing we see no evidence of is that identifying oneself as Messiah could lead to the charge of blasphemy. And so I think the reader is hard pressed. And this is where I think a, there's a good answer to the question from my, uh, I think I offer a solution. One, you get Jesus saying, ego a me, right? Again, he's using, I think, the divine name that I think he used, uh, that I would argue he used, all the way back in chapter six when he's walking on water. And then he references the Son of Man. And, 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 and with an allusion to the Son of Man in Daniel. Um, and I have argued elsewhere that I think the Son of Man that in Judaism at this time, there is a tradition in which the son of man figure in Daniel has been elevated or understood in terms of the second power, right? In terms of the imminent Yahweh. Uh, a really fascinating text are the parables of Enoch. And in the parables of Enoch, you it, it's really an interpretation or expansion on Daniel chapter seven. And you have uh, the son of man, a son of man figure who's identified as Messiah. Um, but he's with the, with the, with, the ancient of days, or are they, they call, oh, I forget the name, it's, it's, it's an it's a, a adapted form of that, and at the moment I'm blanking, Lord of I, Spirits and Head of Days, or something like that, I yeah. think is what it's called, and he's, he receives worship, he is pre-existent, um, what are some other things, I mean, he, he appears like a divine figure, 
Um, and, and there's debate over this, but I, I think he appears. So what I would argue is I think here, Mark is drawing on this and he has Jesus saying, ego a me, and then connecting him to the son of man tradition, this idea of the son of man, the second power figure. And the priest recognizes. And so I think in this text, Jesus is claiming to be the Yahweh of Israel. And that explains why you get a charge of blasphemy. I think it's the, the best explanation for why they would charge Jesus with blasphemy is that he's making a claim to be the God of Israel or identifying in some way with the God of Israel. And so I think um, my argument related to Mark answers this problem in a way that the others are unable to answer the problem. Um, I think it more adequately answers this kind of conundrum. So, yeah, I, I think here we see one of, and if you read my piece, you'll see that this is one of many places where I think Mark is identifying Jesus as this imminent Yahweh. And in doing so, it results in a charge of blasphemy. So that, that, that would be my, my take on that passage. That is fascinating. And to be quite honest, I'd never actually given that argument much um much thought until until you mentioned it there and, and i was just thinking there that's actually a pretty good argument i ha i hadn't considered that and um what i'll actually do here is i i just got the bible that was nearest to me and i'll just read out this daniel passage just for the um listeners who uh, might want to just hear my soothing voice reading it out of course um <laughs> not actually um absolutely um but I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. And and I suppose something interesting to add here, and it's not exactly to do with Mark, is that um, in the book of Revelation, when um, John um, alludes to this passage, he blurs the two, the two categories so that you have the Ancient of Days, kind of the language that is applied to him in the Daniel passage gets applied to the Son of Man passage and vice versa. And it's Absolutely. It's fascinating. So it is. And I, th and I think, and, I, and I'll argue later in another, another book, but I, I, the, the, but yeah, that I think this this that, that what you're seeing this easily blending the two together is doable for John. It's doable for or for for the author of Revelation, whether it's John or not, uh, uh, and for Paul. They're able to do this so seamlessly because the two are understood as Yahweh, and they can be distinct and they can be merged together. And it's it's this it's very um, uh, you know it's material you can play with really and blend together really easily. Uh, anyway. So, so I think I think it explains. I think it has a significant amount of explanatory power for um, early Christology. But yeah. you know, just, we'll, just, we'll see what my colleagues think when I <laughs> right <laughs> enough. Um, just on this note of uh, what maybe what other Old Testament, what other New Testament writers might have, how they might have viewed Jesus. Um, I, I'm aware that you're you're a, a specialist in Mark in particular, but I'm curious to know whether you've. Um, thought about how do how do Luke and Matthew um um view Jesus do they have do they have maybe a lower lower view or or what would your opinion be on on that front so I haven't spent a, a, as much time on those but I will say that I feel like Matthew is more reluctant mm. uh, I, I think I think Matthew is more reluctant and, and what's interesting is many of the many of the examples that are that I put forward in Mark that I think are Mark's way of communicating Jesus as Yahweh. When you get to Matthew, 
he removes them. He, he redacts them in ways to, and, and I think he's a, I think he's aware of what he's doing. It seems pretty uniform. He's getting rid of them. So so I think he is, I, I think Matthew might be more reluctant than Mark. I think Luke, on the other hand, I think uh, there's been a number of argue, a number of uh, recent works, I think, that, that have tried to argue um, for kind of a divine Christology in Luke, especially Luke's use of curios. Um, I think use of Luke's use of curios, uh, some good arguments I think that have been made that, that, that have shown that, that Luke really seems to be using curios in a way that associates Jesus with, for, for those at home, curios is a, a word translated in English to mean Lord. Um, and, and in the Greek, in the Septuagint, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, um, Kyrios is the word that is used to replace Yahweh most frequently, right? When, when, the, when the Hebrew word Yahweh is there, it's replaced with Kyrios. And so when Jesus is called Kyrios, um, Kyrios can refer simply to a master or a teacher or maybe just a, a kingly figure or something like that. But it can also refer to the, the Yahweh of Israel and, and the way in which I believe Luke uses it um, is highly suggestive in Luke recognizing Jesus as the Kyrios of the Old Testament, the, the Yahweh of the Old Testament. Um, so I need to explore that more. Uh, I, I know my friend David, who's working on this project with me, David Wilhite, he's, he's done a lot of spade work there. Um, we, we need to sift through it more and, and, and kind of, uh, you know, call the results and, and try and put something meaningful together. Um, but a lot of people have already done a lot of work there. So, so, I, so I would say Mark and Luke, I, my instincts are, yes, uh, they have this high Christology. Matthew, I think, is more reluctant. And then obviously John, I think, has an extremely high Yahweh Christology. I think, uh, I think Jesus is clearly Yahweh in the Gospel of John. But Yeah, yeah. I, I, obviously I didn't mention John because that one's kind of uh, not difficult <laughs> to argue for. Um, more of a slam dunk, yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, and we're getting towards the end of our time here, but... Um, we have been talking about um, Jesus as as divine. That's um, been the focus of what we're talking about. But um, the, what are some places in Mark where we clearly see the humanity of Jesus? And is there a danger that we overemphasize the divinity of Jesus at the expense of his humanity, do you think? Excellent question. Yeah, I, I, I think it's probably fairly widely agreed upon that in Mark, we see the most human Jesus. Um, we have Jesus who gets hungry. We have a Jesus who feels all kinds of human emotions. We have a Jesus with a, a, a limited knowledge, right? Uh, when asked, uh, you know, when, when, when these things are to come or, or with a time and uh, Jesus says, uh, only the father knows, not even the son, right? So there's limitations in knowledge. So there's a number of, a, a number of things. I, and I should say this, there's not a single con contributor to this volume that's going to argue that Jesus isn't depicted as human in Mark. Right? Uh, any any affirmation that Jesus is divine in Mark is not in any way denial that he's human. Right? He's, he's clearly depicted as human. Um, so so yes, absolutely. I think there's a very clear human depiction of Jesus in Mark, and perhaps more than any other gospel. Um, I think you can make that case. Uh, and I think you raise a good question: Is there a danger in overemphasizing divinity? And I think yes. And this is one of Daniel Kirk's uh, con concerns. I think Kirk uh, sees, um, I think he sees a danger in, in, in arguing for divine Jesus in Mark can undermine Mark's desire to show Jesus as a suffering servant. Um, and, and, and that Mark really wants to emphasize this aspect of suffering and sacrifice and service and, and, and 
I think Kirk fears that if we push this divine Christ, you, you kind of get a Christ of glory that overshadows what Mark is trying to convey. And, and you might overemphasize that. So I think that's a legitimate concern. Um, I think you may be able to lose the human or the suffering Messiah by overemphasizing the divine. Um, but I don't think the answer then is to simply ignore the divine, right? I, I, I think the answer is to hold those two things together in tension and, and to recognize that in Mark, I would say in Mark, the imminent Yahweh is in human form. And and in, and 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 I've and I don't think I've ever put this in print, but but I think that I've made this argument in class. Many will see John's Christology as this obvious incarnational Christology. The Word becomes flesh, and I'd argue I think I don't think Mark's Christology is all that different than than John's. He just does it differently. He just communicates it differently. So I think I think we we need to emphasize that the eminent Yahweh is in human form in Mark. Um, and, and that it is the second power, it is the imminent Yahweh that suffers shame and humiliation and death. And in my mind, the fact that Mark understands Jesus as the Yahweh of Israel makes those things more profound, not less profound. Mm. Right? The fact that it is the Yahweh in human form that suffers, other than rather than just another human who suffers. I mean, and I shouldn't say another human, even an exalted human. That's a profound thing, right? It, it, it's it's the Creator God. Um, it is the word in John that that in Mark and in John and in all the Gospels uh, suffers. And so I think if you, I think there is a danger of overemphasizing and making mistakes there. But I think if you hold those things properly in tension, you get the, the, the best, the best reading or the, the best outcome, which is the human Yahweh in human form suffering. Mm. Uh, I'll add a hearty amen to that. Um, it is, it is <laughs> wonderful to see. And I, it, was, it was when you were saying uh, there isn't anyone in this volume who um, doesn't view Jesus as human. You know, I'm, I'm just thinking, ah, he didn't get a Gnostic contributor. Come on. They were all busy, I think. I think they were all just too busy. All too busy getting connected to the universe. And all That's that. right. <laughs> um, but really, it's it's been great to talk to you and... Um, Really appreciate your insights, and I'll I'll put a link to your book, of course, in the description. Um, what when is it out? I believe I believe it comes out in September. Um, okay. Although I keep seeing the date on the website, and it's and it's showing me two thousand one, and then it has dash eleven, and then it has nine, and so I'm not. I think it is probably September eleven, but but perhaps it's uh, November 9th. But I don't know. But it should be this fall sometime. But I expect September. Okay, yeah, I, there's been something going on on Amazon as well, where all the dates are getting messed up, and it's yeah, it's, it's a bit weird. But um, anyway, I appreciate you um, coming on, and uh, um, wish you good luck in this uh, project that you're going to be working on with your friend. Hey, thank you very much, Patrick. It's really been a pleasure talking to you, and I appreciate the, the thoughtfulness of your questions, and and it's been a pleasure uh, chatting about this. Mm-hmm.